Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. On today's Rewrite Radio, we celebrate Madeline Lingle's centenary. Listen to the voice of a writer whose girlhood as a bookworm prepared her to write fictions capable of opening up wormholes in readers' imaginations. This is Rewrite Radio. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. My name is Don Hedinga, and I teach in the English department at Calvin College and serve on the advisory board of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Madeline Lingle was born a hundred years ago this November 29, and we wanted to celebrate the legacy she left us. In this plenary speech from Festival 1996, the late Lingle talks about mystery and loss, about the experiences that shaped her as a reader and writer, and about the discovery and expression that she has found in story. Madeline Lingle wrote across genres, crafting poems, plays, creative nonfiction, and novels. Her best-known work, A Wrinkle in Time, won the Newbery Medal in 1963. A Wrinkle in Time is the first young adult novel in a series that also includes A Wind in the Door, A Swiftly Tilting Planet, Many Waters, and An Acceptable Time. The author of more than 40 books, Lingle also wrote a series of autobiographical memoirs called The Crosswicks Journals and the seminal Walking on Water, Reflections on Faith and Art. Lingle, in addition to winning the Newbery, has received the National Book Award, The National Council of Teachers of English selected her for the first Allen Award in 1985, and the American Library Association named her the winner of the Margaret A. Edwards Award in 1998. She also earned the Regina Award, a National Humanities Medal, and a host of other prizes and honors. At the time of her death in 2007, A Wrinkle in Time was in its 69th printing. Adapted for film a decade later, its readership continues to grow. From our archive, Madeline Lingle at Festival 1996. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here in this glorious weather. Yesterday I left in a blizzard. It's nice to be warm. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Getting me from the wheelchair into something else. I think I've qualified several times for the funniest home video. (laughs) But one day when I was three, I woke up with my right knee hot and swollen. And uh, my mother took me to a doctor who sent me to a specialist who put me in a leather and steel brace, much worse than this Darth Vader thing that I have on. And uh, it made me cry. She told me later it made her cry. So she took it off. We never went back to the doctor. 
and that was probably the best thing she could possibly have done for me. But uh, I went back to being about as normal as I was ever going to be, as far as my knee was concerned, but forget the rest of it. Uh, it was apparent by the time I went to school that I was not going to win any relay races, that I was not an asset to team sports. And so after school, instead of going out and playing with the kids, I went home and read and wrote. I began to uh, uh, find myself as a, as a storyteller. This is one of the great advantages of, of uh, being very bad at one thing and learning that I could do something else. I wrote my first small story when I was five. And uh, fortunately, my, it, my mother kept it for a long time, but fortunately, it's been lost. But we don't write immortal prose at five. <laughs> <laughs> but we do start to ask questions, the big questions, the cosmic questions, questions I did have sense enough never to ask at school. Why? The perennial question. But it wasn't, why can't I go out and play, or why can't I eat candy? It was, uh, why, if God is good, do terrible things happen? Why is there war? Why are people mean to each other? Why is there a sign on that little girl's front door saying diphtheria? What is diphtheria? Is she going to die? Well, what is death? Where do we go when we die? Well, obviously, I was not a child who went to Sunday school. Because um, Sunday school teachers uh, often tend to answer questions that don't have answers. So I feel quite blessed. <laughs> My father was a drama and music critic, and my parents slept late, so I went to 11 o'clock church with them. So I was spared a lot. Uh, I loved the music, I loved the liturgy, and without knowing it, I fell in love with the great words of Cranmer and Coverdale, and the King James translation of scripture, which, inaccurate though it is, is wonderful. It's glorious. Who goes to heaven? Is anybody left out? As a left-out child, I didn't want anybody left out. My parents taught me that God is love, total love. And love does not leave anybody out, particularly those who are hurt or unhappy. And Jesus said, I, I've not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick, those who know they're broken. For me, I mean, I knew that meant for me. If I felt left out by my school friends and my school teachers, I did not feel left out by God. And I read, and I wrote. I listened to my father coughing his lungs out. He'd been gassed in the First World War, and it took him till I was nearly 18 to finish coughing his lungs out. And he had sense enough not to fool me by saying there would never be another war. I would say, Father, there won't ever be another war, will there? This was that First World War, which is supposed to end wars. But the nations were already lining up for the next war, and the next, and the next. Um, I read in Samuel 2, uh, in the spring of the year at the time when kings go to war, not much has changed. My grandmother died, a favorite uncle died. What happens? Where do they go? Why? We read stories and we write stories because we ask the big questions to which there are no finite answers. And we tell stories about people who give us our best answers in the way that, we, that they live and work out their lives and treat other people and try to find the truth. We moved to Europe for my seventh and eighth grade years, and I learned on the hockey field to ask to play goalie. 
Goalies don't have to run. All you have to do is be intrepid and not mind if you get knocked down. Uh, but my knee cropped up again as a problem in this Anglican boarding school I was sent to. This Anglican boarding school kept me from Anglicanism for at least another 20 years. <laughs> One night I was taken out of study hall and taken up to the infirmary and there was the, the, the nurse and the matron and my homeroom teacher all with smirks on their faces and they had me lie down on a long table. They took out tape measures and they measured me. I had no idea what was going on, what they were doing, if they were smirking. And I was sent back to study hall. About two weeks later, I was called out again. And they opened this box, and in it was a, a big shoe with a huge lift on it. I knew one of my legs was longer than the other. I compensated. I didn't want this thing. But they took away my shoes. So I went down to the cloakroom and uh, put on my rubber boots and took these shoes and went up the hillside and dug a hole and buried them. <laughs> and then I quoted Shakespeare's words that he had on it. Blessed be he who saves these bones, but cursed be he who moves these bones. That's not quite right, but um, <laughs> that's the way I, I felt about it. And they could not get out of me what I had done with the shoes, and they finally gave me back my, my school shoes and let me go on. And my parents wrote a letter saying, leave her alone. Uh, but I was again filled with, with the great words, with the great language, which they couldn't avoid because uh, as an Anglican school, we had morning and evening prayer, badly read by one of the mistresses, but at least there were the words, there was the language. Uh, I envied people who could sit back on their heels, and I've always wanted to be able to sit in full lotus position, but that's never been a possibility, and I've gone along quite well without it. We came back to the States, and there I went to an amazing school run by a woman uh, who grew up in a day when it was not considered nice for young Southern gentlewomen to go to college because most colleges, not Calvin of course, are hotbeds of atheism. And so she waited for her parents to die and she took herself off to Smith College as an undergraduate in her 40s, came back and started her school. And uh, every December we did three plays from the Chester Cycle. Again, language, those great medieval plays. Wonderful language. And then every spring, we did one of Shakespeare's plays. One of my better roles was Sir Andrew Agercheek. Because I was tall and it was a girl's school, I got all the good men's roles. <laughs> and one year, the girl playing the most important shepherd in, in the Christmas plays could not react properly. When the star came on, we were supposed to react. And she was not reacting properly. So the headmistress was down there. She picked up a chair. She ran up on the stage and flung it at Martha. She reacted. <laughs> So there I was learning good direction. I mean, she was a magnificent director. <laughs> and good language all, all put together. I never got on the basketball team, though I was tall. But I was an actress, and I edited the school magazine. And the teachers actually liked what I was writing. Most of us went to the Episcopal Church on Sundays. And that's when I began to learn to write poetry during the sermon. Uh, <laughs> The minister was very dull, and uh, I might not, never have written poetry had it not been for that. <laughs> and again, I was, I was uh, asking the questions and learning, and during the holidays, listening to my father, and when I was 17, he finally died. Why do we die? What happens? What does God do with us? 
Religion classes did not give satisfactory answers. I often have trouble with Paul of Tarsus, but he gave the best answer I've ever heard. He was talking about that glorious impossibility that we're going to get after death, the spiritual body. And when he was asked to explain it, he said, don't be silly. That's the best answer. <laughs> we don't know. All we do is trust. Uh, I believe that uh, what God's up to is going to be good. So I went to college, and the first Sunday I went to church, and nobody spoke to me, so I never went back. I grieved for my father, though I didn't realize that my depression and my angst were ways of grief expressing itself. But I spent four years absorbing great writers, just living with their works, absorbing their use of language, their questions, uh, their characters. I read the best sex scene ever written in Flaubert's Madame Bovary, when Emma goes to meet her lover and they get into a carriage with the shades drawn as it rocks through the streets. I mean, how much more potent that is than blow-by-blow -blow descriptions. I fell in and out of love. I finally wept tears of grief of my father and was purged. I read Plato and Aristotle. And because we had to take a science, I took psychology and dabbled in Freud and Jung. And I wrote stories and about half of what was to be my first novel. We were also required to take a sport, so again, I was goalie. <laughs> One of the seniors got pneumonia and died. And again came the unanswerable questions about death. How can we love God if we do not understand that we are going to die and that God is not going to abandon us? I didn't have a place in my schedule for a music course, but I did get, get an hour a day in one of the music rooms and to, for the piano. And as I played Bach's fugues, I realized that he was asking all of my questions in his fugues and answering them with structure. I learned that Beethoven's music deepened as he grew deafer. And a friend told me that Mahler was expressing his outraged grief at the death of his child in his symphonies. And then I struggled with the perennial question of God's will and our will. And no, God did not make Beethoven deaf for the glory of the music. God did not want my friend in the senior class to die. Bad things happen largely because of what we have done in the past and in the present. My father died because of war, people fighting other people. The Second World War did not seem to be ambiguous but uh, it was still terrible. And uh, I graduated from college in 1941 right into that war. And I did not understand hate. And again, I thought of Samuel in the spring of the year when kings go to war. We just keep doing that. And I finished my first novel. And amazingly, it was published and it did very well. And I had no idea that after several other fairly successful novels, I was going to go into a decade plus of nothing but rejection slips. And uh, having my children and trying to raise them and um, living in a house which we never could heat in the winter, and when once we had a, a washing machine, everything froze in it. <laughs> and I remember being given Anne Mara Lindbergh's beautiful book, Gift from the Sea, and we, she suggests that every young wife and mother go to the sea for two weeks and walk on the beach and pick up pebbles and shells and commune with herself. 
at which point I flung the book across the room. <laughs> Fine for you, Anne Marl Lindbergh. Who's going to come take care of my kids while I go to the city? You know? <laughs> well, two nights a year in January at the time of our anniversary were what, I, were what I got. And they were better than nothing. But there wasn't much time for communing, communing, communing with God or nature or myself. It was, it was struggle. Nevertheless, grace was given in all kinds of ways. The center of the village and of our lives was the old colonial congregational church, which had been redecorated in the worst of Victorian excesses. <laughs> but there was there a, an incredible sense of Christian fellowship, of Christians loving each other. And it was a good meeting place for my husband and for me he with his Southern Baptist background and me with my Episcopal background. Believe me, when my, my mother-in-law learned that her baby boy was going to marry what she called a bachelor girl, living alone in New York City in Greenwich Village, working in the theater, who had published two novels and was an Episcopalian, <laughs> that was the worst blow of all. In marriage, it worked very well, however. But in, in that church, we, we found friends who are still friends for life, who had to teach this city girl how to can and freeze and prepare for winter and to use and treasure the fruits of the earth. But I also learned why I'm not a congregationalist. Uh, at that time, the, the decade of the 50s, no symbol of any kind was allowed. Now there was a nice plain wooden cross by the sanctuary. That would have been considered popish. Um, Kneeling was for your bedside at night when you said your prayers. You did not kneel in church. When the ministers had let us pray, you bowed your head very slightly. Um, <laughs> I was asked to start a choir, and I didn't know that congregations don't process. They still do. It's lovely. Uh, and I learned a lot in, in, with the choir. Uh, I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about failure. I learned a lot about myself all of which came out in, in what I was struggling to write. I was writing Meet the Austins, which comes before A Wrinkle in Time. And in, in the church, God was approached intellectually. And my minister friends answered my questions. My questions did not have answers. And their answers threw me off. And uh, they gave me German theologians to read. Now, there's one great use for German theologians, insomnia. <laughs> now, those long Germanic sentences never use two words when you can use 22. But again, they, they had too many answers. They had no sense of the incredible mystery I felt when I went out at night with the dogs after I'd got the kids to bed and looked at the stars, and there was creation. Two weeks ago, I was in uh, Lakey, Texas, which is in the middle of nowhere. And there were no lights of any kind. And I went out and looked at the stars, and there was the comet. This great big blob pulsing, four times bigger than we are. And again, I had a sense of, of the wonder of creation, and that to God, a baby or a kitten is just as important as all of that, that glory. But within two years, uh, Four of our closest friends died, and that's a lot of death. And again came the questions. What happens 
what in the Congregational Church is the theology of resurrection? Now once in an evangelical, evangelical college, some outsiders were directing some hostile questions to me. And one of the most angry ones was in this tone of voice, do you believe in the literal fact of the resurrection? And I said, well, I stand with Paul in the resurrection of Christianity, but you can't cram the glory of the resurrection into anything as thin as a fact. It's way beyond fact. It's glory, it's what we live by. And that wasn't what they wanted to hear. <laughs> but I do stand with Paul. Uh, all the things I believe in that make my life worth living are impossible in ordinary literal terms. The incarnation, God leaving all that glory and coming to us as an ordinary human mortal being is impossible. But without my absolute belief that God does not lovingly make us and then will never abandon or annihilate us, I could not have written through that decade. I could not write now. How can we explain anything that, that we live by on a literal level? How can we understand the word which shouted all the galaxies into being, abandoning all power and all glory and coming to us as a servant? Perhaps if I had been more satisfied with the theology of the Protestant 50s, I wouldn't have, I would have been less probing. My minister friends uh, were sympathetic, but they, they had all the, they'd been given the answers in seminary and uh, their theology was too literal, too explainable. Then I discovered a book by Berjayev, the Russian theologian, who uh, opened doors and windows, particularly when he talked about a forensic God that we, that we have been worshiping a forensic God. That was not the God my parents taught me. The God my parents taught me was a God who was in it with us, in all our griefs, all our pains, all our joys, all our laughter. I think God has a wonderful sense of fun and often at our expense. <laughs> but how was I to, to talk to my children uh, about all of this? We, we, uh, a seven-year-old girl came into our family because of the untimely death of her parents. How did I talk to the kids at prayer time about death? We did talk. Prayer time was uh, the longest part of the day and my favorite part because I loved my children's prayers. One night during the 50s when we were close to war, we thought, my son was saying his list of God blesses. He was about four, and he suddenly posted, and God, remember to be the Lord. <laughs> I thought, I don't have to teach this kid anything. <laughs> and my writing reflected my, my questions and my responses, not my answers. I wrote Meet the Austins as a valentine for my husband, and had a long struggle to get it published. It's a simple little book about an ordinary family living ordinary lives, which meant that they had to face and live through the ordinary problems of life, the death of a beloved friend, the unexpected, the joyful, the funny and terrible. I'm not sure why it frightened publishers, but it did. And for two years, and then the publisher who finally took the book was so scared of it that they didn't publish it for a year after it was announced. And I struggled with the ordinary problems of life living in an old farmhouse that was always cold in winter, uh, working with my actor husband in the village store, raising children for a decade uh, with its fear of communism, fear of nuclear war, fear of thinking anything new. 
When I got overtired, which is much of the time, my knee hurt, but I paid no much attention to it. It was just an old pain to which I was moderately accustomed. And um, I was still struggling with my questions, and for some reason, I picked up a book of Einstein's. Now, since I avoided science as much as possible, I do not know why I picked up a book of Einstein's. But in it, I read that anyone who was not lost in rapturous awe at the power and the glory of the mind behind the maker of the universe is as good as a burnt out candle. I thought, I have found my theologian. <laughs> so I began to read more Einstein, Planck and the quantum theory, and it was the discovery of particle physics and, and, and the wonders of, of, of science, which I finally discovered, that led to the writing of A Wrinkle in Time, which came to me uh, when my kids were seven, 10, and 12. And at that time, my husband was restless. We'd, he'd made a success of this village store. What to do? I said, go back to the theater. That's where you belong, go back to the theater. So we took our kids out of a small dairy farm village, which was quiet, to the middle of Manhattan and the world of the theater, which we found much quieter than the country, with the PTA and driving the kids hither, hither, and yon. In, in the city, they could take the bus. It was wonderful. It was a big move. We had to rent our house and the animals. We had three dogs and seven cats. And my husband said firmly to the children, we will take one dog and one cat. And our seven-year-old looked at him with his big blue eyes and said, and one child, Daddy? <laughs> well, we decided to take all three children and to take them on, on a long tent camping trip to bridge the, uh, the gap between these two totally disparate lives. And I'd been to Europe. I knew the east coast of the United States, but I knew nothing much about the rest of my own country. So it was a beautiful and eye-opening trip. And I had a box in the front seat full of books and magazines on the making of the universe, on the science that I was just discovering was, was theology for me. Who made it? Who made it all? Why? I would sit outside our tent at night and look up at the stars, at the wild beauty of the night sky, and feel surrounded by the presence of the maker, the great storyteller. The Sunday that we were at the Grand Canyon, we were horrified that the church service was held in a building instead of out in God's own church, in the glory of what was outside. And perhaps the canyon itself ask too many questions of why and how and when. In my mind, I began to write A Wrinkle in Time, which was for me an affirmation of my theology and my love of God, who loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son to us to teach us how to be human. Not ordinary. Human beings are not ordinary. We are extraordinary. Why did God make us as we are? Why did God give us the terrible and dangerous gift of free will? How do we find out what is our will and what is God's will? And I kept wanting to know and asking more questions. I was happy to return to New York where people, lots of people were asking questions. It was the city of my birth, it, was my, it is my home. We were given good scholarships for our children in an Episcopal school, so I went back to the church of my birth. And my Baptist husband responded to the beauty of the liturgy. 
and the symbolism. And A Wrinkle in Time began its long journey from publisher to publisher to publisher. Now it fascinates me, when the book was finally published, it was hailed as a Christian book. It is now one of the 10 most censored books in the United States, <laughs> along with The Diary of Anne Frank and Grapes of Wrath and Huckleberry Finn and other wicked books. <laughs> uh -huh. Now, not a word of these books have changed. What has changed? What has happened? What is happening? Uh, why have these books suddenly become dangerous? And the question is far larger than a list of books. What are Christians afraid of? I thought perfect love casts out fear. But slowly I'm learning what some of the fears are and where they come from. In an article in the Times, it tells of some women who wanted the middle school textbooks removed from the schools because they were afraid they might stimulate the children's imaginations. <laughs> and I thought, how can we believe without all the God-given imagination we possess? And then I realized, long after reading that article, I realized that in the King James translation, imagination does not mean what it means now. It's not of those words that has changed. It's a bad word put them down in the imagination of their hearts. And so these women were taking imagination as it was understood back to 300 years ago. Many words have changed. Prevent, it's really preveniary to go before. And in the King James translation, that is what it means, go before. We have reversed its meaning. So in reading those great and glorious sentences, we have to make sure we know what the words mean. And imagination, does not mean what it meant back then. I'm fascinated by, by words and, and by how they shift and change and grow and move. The language that comes from the media is appallingly bad. And the media makes the terrible mistake, of, particularly in the commercials, of making us believe that normal is nice. And then when things aren't nice, we get upset. Well, normal is not nice. Normal is like the weather. Unexpected, wonderful, terrible, but not nice. Back in New York, as I learned changes in language, I changed too. The world changed. The 60s exploded. In England, a group of, a group of theologians decided that God was dead. So I read a couple of their God is dead books and decided I didn't have their problem. Yeah. <laughs> If they wanted to get rid of the cross old man in the nightgown, that was fine with me. My children grew, left home, gave me grandchildren. My husband died. All the ordinary things of life and death and being mortal human beings. My knee began to be more and more bothersome and finally it became apparent that it had finished with its job and needed to be replaced. And so two years ago, I had a brand new knee put in and wouldn't you think that would have been the end of it? No, it wasn't. The new knee had been put in in such a way that the foot couldn't support it. So the foot became more and more deformed and more and more fractured. And uh, three weeks ago, I think it was, um, I had my foot taken apart and put back together again. And I said to the, to the doctor, we'll have to put this off six months. I mean, I've got to give people six months notice. He said, this is Friday, I'm doing it Monday. I said, well, can I keep my commitments in a wheelchair? He said, yes. Then he said, people are either too busy or not busy enough, and I prefer too busy. Well, obviously, so do I. <laughs> and uh, but I've 
my writing is always enlarged and changed by what is happening. Before I had the surgery, I was struggling with the cane. We've had a brutal winter of snow and more snow and more snow, and I would be struggling to get over a snow drift. And always, arms would come around me, and I'd be helped across the snow by one of the street people. And that awed and humbled me. So um, I'm hoping that when I get out of the cast, I'll be able to walk like a normal human being. But um, meanwhile, here I am. I was, I was committed to give the Perkins Lectures in Wichita, Kansas. No, Wichita Falls, Texas. My sense of geography is not terribly good. <laughs> and I began to look at the life of Jesus in an entirely new way. I began, and it came from a question that somebody in my church asked about one of the late parables, which is quite a, a rough one. I said, but he told that to the people he knew was going, were going to kill him. So I started looking at the parables at the time when he told them, in their chronological order. And they, they start out gently and humorously. And as he gets closer and closer to death and to being misunderstood, the parables get harsher and harsher till you get one like the owner of the vineyard who sent his servants to collect his dues and they were stoned. And finally he sent his son and they killed his son. And he's telling that parable to the people he knows are going to kill him. Where the story comes is very important in our understanding of what Jesus was trying to tell us. And I began to realize that, that his promise when he came, when Christ came into the world as Jesus to be a human being, that that was his promise. Not to do God things as Jesus, but to be a human being. And he kept that promise faithfully all the way through. He could have avoided the cross. And he didn't. He kept his promise to be human. Then I discovered, it occurred to me, that some of the things I was discovering might make more sense and be less startling if I told them from Mary Magdalene's point of view. And uh, suddenly I began to write a book about Mary Magdalene. I had three other books I was working on. Mary Magdalene took over. I've written 50 pages. She's still only 15. <laughs> books surprise me. They don't do what I expect. They know more than I do. And my job is to listen, not to control or dominate or manipulate, but to listen. Listen to the story in the same way that when I pray, I try to listen to God, to get out of the way and listen. So I have two unexpected manuscripts with me, the, uh, the book about Jesus and the book about Mary Magdalene, and discs of three other books that I guess are going to go on the shelf for a while. God has ways of making us do what is needed without interfering with our free will. And this week I'm looking forward enormously to listening to all of the wonderful speakers here, my friends and my colleagues, without whom I would feel that I was wandering alone in the desert. And with you, my companions along the way, I feel courage and joy. Thank you. We do, we do have time for some questions, which I would love if, if anybody would be nice enough. 
Um, and just before she came on, now this is up to you folks, she said that some of the best things happen when people ask questions. So it, and, and it's Donna in your asked court. if I was willing to entertain questions, and I said, sure, but I'm not sure how to entertain them. I mean, so I'm, <laughs> Hi folks, Don Hedinga here again. I'm interrupting because next, Madeline will be taking questions, but the audience wasn't miked, so I'll be repeating their questions for you. The first question is whether she has any advice for those writing books that appeal to young readers. I still think that the kids want books that are written out of the writer's own need and experience, and that if we are honest, in our work, that they will respond to that much more than to stuff that is written because it's in, in fashion. Uh, I, I get over 100 letters a week, and only about a quarter of them are from kids. But they, they range from the, we have to write an author. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorites is from a little girl saying, Dear Miss Lengel, you are the greatest writer in all time. You know, Sentence after sentence, a fulsome phrase, signed, P.S. I have not yet read any of your books, but I'm sure they'll be good when I do. <laughs> and then I get wonderful letters saying, my, my teacher says that my dog who died can't go to heaven. What do you think? And I say, well, only the, an only the human beings were tossed out of Eden, not the, not the animals. Uh, well, they ask questions that make you, they want, they want some kind of, of a response. Um, they keep me on my toes, and so that gives me courage that they're still responding to uh, books which are not necessarily in the, in the current fashion. I think kids want truth. I think they're not afraid of truth, and I think they're willing to accept it no matter how harsh it is, as long as you're honest with them. Next, the audience wondered how she would respond to Christians who objected to her books on religious grounds. Well, I think, the, again, the misuse of the word imagination has a lot to do with it. Um, they assume that Mrs. Watchett, Mrs. and Mrs. Witch, who are identified in the book as guardian angels, are witches. If you're looking for evil, you are going to find it. If you look for Satan, Satan will oblige immediately by appearing. If you're looking for sex, you will find that. Uh, and I don't understand why people are looking for these things. When I, I go to bed at night, and read, I want to be encouraged. I want to know that I'm God's child. I want to know that, that everything in the world matters. I want to be given more courage to face whatever it is. I don't want these uh, downgrading of, of humanity books, but they seem to be very, very popular. I think temporarily, I doubt if they're read and reread. They're not the books I would reread, certainly. It makes me feel bewildered and very sad because I don't understand why people want to see evil. I mean, I live in the Upper West Side of New York City, which is not the fashionable part. And I walk by junkies and winos and drug pushers, and I can't avoid evil. But I don't go looking for it. I'd much rather rejoice in the fact that that street person who smells helped me across the snow. Uh, we do tend to find what we look for, and not enough people are looking for Christ. I don't understand Christians who are looking for hate. That is not Christ-like. Uh, but see, I have a real big problem here. How do I keep from being judgmental about people I think are judgmental? 
Uh, but I, it, it does make me very sad. Because when I, when I write something which I believe is an offering to God, and it's seen as wicked, I think, what have I done wrong? I mean, is it, is it really, is that what the book says? But then I get enough affirmation from other people saying, no, it's not what the book says. Uh, there's something ab abroad today that, that frightens me that I've, that I've never seen before. In a group of people calling themselves Christians who want to put other Christians down rather than uphold, teach, uh, be witnesses. Years ago, the, the, the great Boston preacher, Phillips Brooks, was asked why he was a Christian. And he answered very seriously, I think I am a Christian because of my aunt who lives in Teaneck, New Jersey. And we are all supposed to be that aunt in Teaneck, New Jersey. We're supposed to be such witnesses of Christ's love that other people will want to know what makes us glow. And the minute we begin to hate, to put down, that light goes. I know that when I'm angry, I can feel my light flickering and dimming. It's only when I am willing to let go and listen. I sometimes remind myself of a little boy who was going to be late for school for the third day in a row. He's really going to get it when he got there. He's running as fast as he can. Say, God help me. God help me. God help me. He goes flat in a mud puddle. He looks up to, I didn't say push. <laughs> God pushes. Next, when is the film adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time coming out? Well, right now it's with Miramax, and I don't know where it's going to go. My favorite story of that was while it was with Norman Lear. Um, well, Norman sent his assistant, Kathy Hand, to the telephone to call me, and I said, no, I'm not interested. But she said, I'm coming to New York anyhow. Why don't we have lunch at the Twin Towers? Well, I'd never had lunch at the Twin Towers. <laughs> so we had lunch, and I said, I, I can't sign the average Hollywood contract because I cannot sign that clause giving the producer freedom to change character and theme. Well, I got the clause reversed, and I got a contract I was willing to sign. It had in it a clause giving the producers the rights to the movie in perpetuity throughout the universe. So I took a red pen and I made an asterisk and I said, with the exception of Sagittarius and the Andromeda Galaxy. <laughs> well, they had a serious meeting of their lawyers before they would accept this. <laughs> In case I knew something they didn't know. <laughs> I would like it to be made into a movie, but a good movie, not a bad one. I mean, I, I, I believe my books. And so I can't sign that clause. And I'd rather not have them done than have them come out and say something I'm not saying, which is very easy in the world of Hollywood. Then the audience asked what she remembered about her first experience of getting published. Oh, I was very young. I thought this was perfectly natural. <laughs> the name of the first book was The Small Rain, and um, it's back in print. It's a good first novel. I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, but I took it for granted. And uh, it, I'd had half a dozen books published, and I went into this decade plus of nothing but rejection slips. And with, with A Wrinkle in Time, which is the last one, uh, 
Mostly they were just a plain printed rejection slip, not even a little pencil note saying try us again or something like that, just no. And uh, I would go down the dirt road and say, God, why all these rejection slips? You know it's a good book, I wrote it for you. And the stars just kept right on shining. And, uh, but what was amazing to me was that the book was published at what was for it exactly the right moment. And uh, if it had been published two and a half years earlier, it might just have dropped into a little black hole. As it was, it came out just at the perfect moment for itself. And that's God's timing, not mine. Uh, but it didn't make the rejections any easier. They were very, very hard because I believed in this book. I believed I was truly listening and that what had come out was good. And when it was finally accepted, uh, well, it was wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling of, of uh, that, that, that finally somebody understood what I was trying to do. I was willing to rewrite forever for an editor who understood it, but not for one who wanted me to take, take out the evil, the unyou, but for one who wanted to make the book deeper and better. And I finally in, found uh, an editor and a publisher who was willing to do that. Finally, the audience wondered what gave her the courage to keep writing. The rejection slips were very, very hard. And when I could get a moment's privacy, which wasn't often, I cried. Uh, on, the, on my 40th birthday, I couldn't wait to be 40. I mean, the decade of my 30s was absolutely the pits. Was, I thought, things have got to change. So on my 40th birthday, I was out in my workroom, which is over the garage, writing. And I, I had a book out that I knew was close to being accepted. And um, the post office was in our store. And my husband called. And he said, I hate to do this to you on your birthday, but you'd never trust me again if I didn't. Uh, they've rejected the book. So I took this as a sign from God that I was supposed to learn to enjoy mopping my kitchen floor and making cherry pie. <laughs> um, I covered my typewriter in a great gesture of renunciation. And then I was walking up and down my little workroom, sobbing. And I suddenly stopped in my tracks, because what was my subconscious mind doing? It was blip, blip, blipping up to my conscious mind the plot of a novel on failure. <laughs> so I uncovered my typewriter. And that night, I wrote in my journal, I'm a writer. That's who I am. That's what I have to do. And I had to accept them that I might never again be published. I mean, that was a, a strong possibility. And I'm glad I made that decision in the pits, because it's easy to say when things are going well. But I could say it when everything was falling apart. Uh, I'm stubborn. Uh, I couldn't stop. I don't know what gave me the courage to go on. So often we don't know until we're through something how we ever got through it. We're just too busy getting through it to think about it. I think perhaps that may be a good note on which to end because uh, there are many of us here who are very interested in continuing on in, in writing and um, in looking ahead. And so we thank you, Madeline, for the example that you've given. Thank you. Happy birthday, Madeline. We miss you and we thank you. 
Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and at festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.